as I was praying this week, I said, Lord, how can I, how can I come and, 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 and share with my brothers and sisters out of where my um, heart is? And I believe he gave me just a little bit of direction. And it is uh, simply this, vapor, value, vulnerability, and victory. Vapor, value, vulnerability, and victory. So would you pray with me, and let's just take a moment and just ask the Lord to help us today. You know, it's his anointing, which is the touch of his spirit that breaks the yoke, right? God's word breaks the yoke. The, the, the hammer of his truth and his word under the anointing breaks the yoke in our hearts. And Father, I ask you today, Lord, we are gathered here. We are here in your precious name, God. We're here because of your precious blood. And Lord, we are here from a diversity of different lives and experiences. Some of us, Lord, are here and we're able to bless the Lord because we're in a place where the sun is shining down on us. And we can see, Lord, I can see clearly now the rain is gone. Everything looks like beautiful horizons ahead. Or we may be here today, God, in the, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, maybe searing loss. God, we are here. But the unifying Factor, Lord, is your presence, Lord, knitting all of our hearts together. As one weeps, we all weep. As one rejoices, we all rejoice. So today, Lord, let your anointing come and destroy the works of the devil in our hearts and in our midst. Lord, your word does not return void, God. So let it do what you intended for it to do, Lord. Let us yield fully and wholeheartedly to your purposes. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk about vapor. Now, you may be vaping, but I'm not talking about vaping. I'm talking about vapor, so don't pull out your vaping stuff. James chapter 4, verse number 13. This passage came to mean a lot to me over the last couple of weeks. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So in this moment, James speaks to us about the brevity of life. The brevity of life. A couple of days ago, I went by the funeral home to pick up my mom's ashes. Perhaps you've been in a similar situation in your, in your own life. And I remember when I got a hold of the ashes and I, you know, looked at the bag, it was a, just a surreal experience of looking at what remains of a physical body of somebody that you loved and treasured. Really, you wouldn't be here without the person, right? And I began to let my mind roll through that and realize this is the summation of our physical existence. And I began to think of how hopeless it must be for those in the world with no hope, for those with no God, with no understanding of that there's something beyond the grave, how sad and how empty it must be to not have that present reality. As I looked at the ashes, I began to, my mind began to wonder and began to realize that how many of us try so hard to hide from this reality. One thing about ministry that makes it very real for us is that we 
walking people into death so often in funerals and hospitals and you, and you see the reality of that. But for many in the world today, we run very hard from that reality. We hide from it. We don't want to talk about it. It is a taboo subject. In fact, we go to great lengths to be nipped, to be tucked, to be injected with Botox, to have our hair added to or taken away or colored. We try ferociously to run away and hide ourselves from the reality that we shall return to dust from which we were formed. And I wonder sometimes, rather than run from it, perhaps we should be informed by it. And we should embrace it and let that reality fuel our existence. See, James will give us the same advice. He said, don't you understand that your life is a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes? It's that fast and that quick. I don't know about you, but when I was in my teens or in my 20s, I felt like I had this infinity in front of me in my physical existence. But have you realized that's not true? I can take you to the gravesides of many younger than that whose life came to a short conclusion. As sands through the hourglass, you recall, right? As the, chur- as the stomach churns, right? As sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our life. It's caused me to take a moment and reflect of the reality that life is so short. And we must maximize and capitalize upon every moment, every conversation, every relationship. Some of you are like me and you are, you married way up. How many of you could say you married way up? I married so far up, it was out of my stratosphere. I was a junior in high school. She was a freshman, sophomore in college. I married way up, right? My wife is absolutely amazing. And one of the things that she does so well and has inspired me continually through 25 years of marriage is the ability to squeeze the most out of life, out of every moment and every relationship. She is early to rise and late to go to bed. And if you know her, you know what I'm talking about. She loves life. She treasures every single moment. When I want to stay in bed, she will get up. When the kids come in late, she will get up and let's go talk to them. Just squeezing the most out of life. And honey, it's inspired me and continues to inspire me. She lives in that reality. That life is like a vapor that appears for a moment and then vanishes. My friends, let's live in that reality. Let's embrace it. Let's talk about it. Let's understand that the summation of your physical existence will culminate in ashes, in the dirt from which God originally formed us, and that is the end. Now, in that place, in that knowledge of that, if we can embrace that truth, if we can be fueled by that, it causes us to ask some other questions. That will lead us to some very hopeful and victorious answers. It's not just about the vapor we are, but if we are a vapor, then how do we make what little time we have valuable? The value, the value. What makes life valuable? What is a life of significance? Everybody in the world is asking that question. We're all seeking to have some form of significance. What is a significant life? Now, I can tell you this. 
that a significant life is not one lived for yourself. Simply, a significant life is not a life that is lived for yourself. We know this, self-fulfillment is a bottomless pit that seeks more and more and more and more. In fact, in truth, the only thing that lasts and satisfies in the end is what you do for others. It's what you do for others, not what you do for yourself. The only thing that brings you great joy is what you're able to give. You see, the joy in giving is not in the getting. The joy is in the giving. The great truth of all forms of generosity is not that I'm giving to receive, that I'm hoping for any type of reciprocation, but I'm giving out of a generous heart, and in that act becomes the great joy. Jesus said, I can endure the cross for the joy set before me is in laying down my life for you. Did Jesus suffer? Oh, he suffered tremendously, but he experienced unfathomable, unfathomable pleasure in laying down his life for those that he loved. What greater love than this than a man would lay down his life for his friend. The only thing that lasts forever is what you do for others. That is what will satisfy you. The only things of eternal value in this life are God's word and the relationships that we form here. Do you understand that? The only thing that will go and pass into eternity future is God's word. Heaven and earth will pass away, but his word will remain forever. And the eternal souls that you exist with, that's sitting around you right now and in your home and in your family. That's it. You realize that? Not your boat. Not your car, not your 401k. I remember being at the bedside of a man who was very wealthy. He had all the toys, he had the boats, he had the jet skis, he had the motorhome, he had all this stuff and lots of money. But his family had been fractured by his two divorces and just lots of dysfunction. And as I was at his bedside, he would later find Christ, thank God. But you know one of the things that he talked about? He never had any regrets involving he wished he had more money or more houses. Do you know what he wanted more of? The most precious commodity of all was time. Was time. If I could have just done this, if I could have just talked to so-and-so, da, 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 da. And I saw the brokenness in his life. A man who had literally everything, yet he died with regret. That's not how God has called us to live. If we live every moment like our life is a vapor, we will, it will change how you live. Fundamentally. But the challenge is this, that all of us have this sin nature inside of us. And it, and it seeks gratification. It seeks self-gratification. And the prince of this world inspires a marketing strategy that feeds these sinful impulses. You understand? We understand that Ephesians 1 teaches us there is a devil, and he's the prince and power of the air. He infuses the spirit of the Antichrist, the spirit of the age, and it undergirds and infuses everything in our culture. And our marketing system strategizes on how to feed your unique impulses to satisfy self. The self that is a bottomless pit and is never satisfied, so there's no limit to the money that can be made 
for those who give into these impulses. Have you ever thought about that? Everything today is customized. Everything is customized to fit your unique needs or body size or what have you. I'm old enough to remember going into McDonald's and when you ordered a cheeseburger, they reached up and there was this little thing there and they grabbed one and they, and they put it on your, on your uh, tray. There was no option of no onions and mustard and such. You just had to come back and unroll it and you had to scrape it off. How many know what I'm talking about? Was anybody alive for that day? It would never have occurred to you to stand and tell the person behind the counter, now I want a cheeseburger, but I don't want any mustard on it, just a little bit of mayonnaise, no onions. I want it wrapped a certain way. and I want wheat bread. I don't want the kind with the little, you know, sesame seeds on it. I want it my way. In other words, the level of customization has impacted every single area. And don't misunderstand the marketing system. It understands that. In fact, now even sin is customized just for you. Even sinful impulses now, sinful impulses are customized just for you to feed that bottomless pit of self-gratification. That ultimately will bring no value to your life but leave you empty and hollow. It was a tragedy to see the death of Robin Williams not that much long ago. A phenomenal actor, right? I mean, we all have laughed and enjoyed. Some of my earliest memories as a kid was watching Mork and Mindy and Nanu Nanu, the whole thing. Remember that? And I would laugh and Robin Williams made generations of people laugh. A man who had everything, fame, popularity, money, what you thought was significance and a life terminated by suicide. I don't know Robin Williams, but I don't think it would be a stretch to surmise that there was something missing in his life because he had everything the world could offer, yet he had absolutely nothing. It's the world in which we live. How do we find a life of significance? Is a life not lived for yourself, but a life lived for others. This is what Jesus represented. He told an interesting parable. I'm not going to read all of it for the sake of time, but in Matthew chapter 13, it's the very familiar parable of the sower. Remember, a sower went out to sow. Now, it's interesting that this parable is one of the only parables, and maybe the only one, if, I, if memory serves correct, that Jesus actually interpreted for the reader. Most of the parables you read, and you're kind of left to sort of in, interpret yourself, but this one, he told us what it means. And there was one particular condition that Jesus told us about, and it's found in Matthew 13, verse 7. He says, some of the seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. Now, you don't want to stop right there. You need to keep on reading because Jesus is going to define for us what he's talking about. So, we're, so to make sure we're not going to misinterpret anything. So in verse number 22, he gives us the interpretation. He says, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world, or some translations, and the cares of this life, and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So Jesus warns us two things that are deadly to us the cares of this life, and the deceitfulness of wealth. 
You see, we live in these thorns and we are constantly being poked and influenced by these thorns. We've never lived in a time where there's more worry in the world, where the cares of this life aren't innumerable. Many of us are even having difficulty going to bed at night without the assistance of some form of self-medication to alleviate the pressure of the cares of this world. I'm sure it would shock every one of us if I just did a simple show of hands, how many has to knock yourself out at night through some form? It would be scary, right? Because many of us would say, oh, that's me. You'd be surprised. The cares of this life, the worries of this world are everywhere. And the other one is the deceitfulness of wealth, the, the allure of having more and more and more. And there's never an end to it. It's deceitful. It's deceptive that once I get this, I'll be happy. Once I purchase that, I'll be happy. If I can just get rid of this wife and get another one, I'll be happy. If I can sell this car, I'll just be happy. If I can get an upgrade to leather, I'll just be happy. And if we take just a moment, we begin to realize, oh my gosh, what's the enemy doing here? He's sucking us into a lifestyle of self-gratification, trying to fill a bottomless pit, and it leaves us empty and unfruitful. Do you notice that in that verse? And it becomes unfruitful. I dare say the most unfruitful Christianity on the planet is in the United States of America. The most unfruitful on the planet is found in this country. The church is literally bearing little to no fruit here. More churches are closing their doors than are opening their doors. I wonder why. Because we live amongst the thorns. We're living lives caught up in the cares of this life and we're caught up in the deceitful pursuits of wealth and it's choked the fruit out of us. And it is a noticeable absence of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And we need to take note of this. Because true value and true significance, the true meaning of your existence can only come from a life that is lived fully and wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. It's not a cliche. It's not a trite. It is a transcendent truth on heaven imparted to us through the eternal world of God. As God said, this is where your life will find meaning and significance. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says... Jesus died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. That we no longer live for ourselves, we live for him. So it's not just living for somebody else that's going to save you, it's living for him. In other words, the United Way is not going to help you. True altruism it's not going to save you. It still leaves you at the end. True satisfaction is living for Jesus. He's the reason. So it begs the question, how do we live amongst the thorns and thrive? How do you live amongst thorns and thrive? Because you can't get rid of the thorns. Everywhere you look, there's worry, there's stress. Some of you couldn't even sleep last night because you were so torn up about the South Carolina primaries. You were just all eat up. You couldn't wait till your little Fox News alert came through on the phone, let you know what happened. You're just torn up over it, one way or the other. At every angle, the cares of this life, the marketing, 
coming after you to buy this, get that. How do you live among them? There was a song that was written, and we don't know who wrote it. We really don't know how it all came about exactly. But it was a very simple song. It simply says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his what? Glory and grace. I think we should sing it. You think we should sing it? You better sing louder. You're going to have to listen to me. Ready? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely in the light of his glory and grace. Pretty good. So it's not that the things of this world are inherently bad, but they need to become dim to us in the light of who he is. See, that's why I wear nice clothes and driving nice things, and it's really not that, that's okay, but we understand that it's a dim comparison to what's bringing the true light, you see. Because if we turn our eyes toward Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, we begin to live for him. We begin to feast on him. We begin to find our satisfaction in him. Well, we're going to discover that this world can't compare to what he has for us. The new wine of his presence will grant you a far greater high than any wine on this planet when you know Jesus. You see, value comes in surrendering to his will, living for him, and doing for others. It's really quite simple, isn't it? We live in the vapor. It vanishes. We find value in living for others, primarily for Jesus. Vulnerability is the next one. Vulnerability. Because of the above, because of living amongst the thorns, we are very susceptible to the things of this age if we're not careful. Look in your Bibles in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and as I read this passage, I want you to understand that this is not describing the world. This is describing the church in the last days. Sometimes we read this and we kind of miss sometimes who's being talked to here. This is the condition that the church will find itself in in the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Welcome to First Church America. Come on in, sign our membership roster. 
Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. If there was ever a proper diagnosis of the Western church, it's found in Paul's admonitions to Timothy. This is how it's going to look in the last days inside the walls of the church. A form of godliness that denies the power thereof. So you see, we need a sense of urgency, don't we? The hour is this, that amongst the thorns, the thorns in which we live, there is a susceptibility of becoming the prophetic fulfillment of these words. Can I tell you, we don't want to fulfill this prophecy. Amen? You don't want to fulfill this prophetic word. There are some prophetic words you don't want to walk in the fulfillment of. And this is one we don't want to claim right here. We don't want this to be us. There needs to be a sense of urgency. We need to be asking ourselves honestly and truthfully, is this describing us? Is this describing me? Am I like this? Am I doing these things? Does this impact me? Makes you want to go back and reread it, doesn't it? To go back and, and say, is it even appropriate for us to do that? Yes, yeah, 2 Corinthians 13, 5 gives us this admonition. It says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? You examine yourselves. Is this describing you? Is it describing me? And I don't know about you, but as I read through that list of things, I see some elements in me that I'm not very happy with. I said, Lord, I need to deal with these things. One of the ways we examine ourselves is when we come into a place like this and begin to give worship to God. You realize we sing not just to allow you time to get here in the morning. Right? It's not just to like, you know, buy yourself, you know, a few extra minutes at McDonald's or, you know, a little more hair straightening, whatever it takes. It's not a filler. A worship service is not a filler. Worship literally means to describe worth. That's what worship is. When we sing a worship song, we are ascribing worth to the one we are singing it to. And as we ascribe worth unto him, he is gracious enough to expose the worthless things in our lives. Worship ascribes worth, and in that we see the worthless pursuits of a life that's lived here. A life in this world that seeks to conform you into its image. Romans 12, Paul says that, that we are to be what? Transformed by the renewing of our mind, not being conformed to this world. Because you realize this world seeks to conform you. Now more than ever, through unlimited resources, 24 hours a day, seven days a week through media outlets conforming you into its image. It's in God's presence where we are transformed and we are exposed where we can repent and we can come into his presence. That's why singing and worship is so important. Let me give you an example of a lyric from a very famous song. It's found in Psalm 139. Did you know that Psalm, the book of Psalms, was a hymn book? You realize that, Right? In other words, these were sung, right? These are worship songs that David wrote and others wrote. These are songs. And this is one of the songs that David sung and that David taught those around him to sing. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So part of our ascribing worth to God is allowing in worship for God to do this very thing. Lord, search me, Lord. Expose the anxieties in life. Lead me in the way everlasting. It's not just hanging on every word on the screen to be sure you sing it correctly. Perhaps you should just not sing any of it. And close your eyes and say, Lord, search me, O God, in this moment. Realign myself. I turn my eyes to you. Where have things become bright that should be dim? Help me, Lord. That's the position that we must take in an environment where we are very vulnerable and susceptible to the carnal world in which we live. A place of worship and word is paramount in staying in this place. And then lastly, there's victory. There's victory. Yes, there's vapor, there's value, there's vulnerability, then there's victory. How can we move into the place of victory to get ready for what is coming? Do you believe that God has called us to be victorious in this place? We are not called to live defeated lives being mowed down by sin and sinful consequences. We are called to rise above it, to overcome, and to march in victory. This is, Jesus came to do this. That we might have life and life more abundant. That yes, there's going to be trials and there's going to be tribulations and there's going to be difficulties. But Jesus, but Jesus said, I have overcome the world and I have made you overcomers more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. How do we move into that place of victory? How do we get there? There's a way. In the midst of these terrible times, we need to recognize what is coming though. What is God's plan for the ages? He's not given up. He's got a plan. It was foreshadowed by the prophet Amos in Amos 9. Look at what's coming, guys. And the time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster then they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. The fields are white unto harvest. God is saying the harvest is going to come in with such a tidal wave that we're not going to be able to stay up with it. We're sowing seeds and it's coming to maturity faster than we can harvest it. It's going to come that fast and that ferocious. And God is saying, I need my people to get ready for that hour and ready for that day. Because it's coming and it is here. It is coming to America. Neil Diamond just didn't have that idea. God had that idea. The harvest is coming to America. Are you ready? But you know, Amos gives us another word that's a little harder for us to hear. Because he tells us this in Amos 7, 8, that the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And I said, you get it? I see a what? I see a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Now, I'm not into construction, but I went in and I found a plumb line. Who knows what this is? Who knows the purpose of a plumb line? Jason, I bet you know what it is, don't you? It's to make what happen? To make sure the wall is straight. 
The wall is straight. God says, I'm going to drop a plumb line in the midst of my people, and I'm going to straighten them out. I'm going to show them what's right, and I'm going to show them what's wrong. I'm going to set them apart in the days to come. As God would speak to Israel, one of the things that he was very clear about, he said, I am setting you apart from the nations all around you. In fact, he would use this vocabulary, I am drawing a distinction between you and between them. The problem is, in this age, there's not much of a distinction between the world and what's inside the church. Because what's inside the church is in 2 Timothy 3, which is likened to what's inside the world. And says, God says, I'm not going to leave you that way. I am dropping a plumb line in the midst of my people. This is the way. Walk ye in it. In other words, God is straightening us out. He's calling us out of religion, out of traditions of man, out of selfishness into sacrificial love and sacrifice. This is what God is doing. It takes the plumb line of God's word and God's presence to do this. My wife and I, one of the first houses we owned was in Dalton, Georgia, and we bought the house that was being built and it was constructed, and oddly enough, they didn't put the mirrors up in the bathrooms. Maybe that was a blessing. I don't know. So we lived for a long time without mirrors in one of the bathrooms, and finally we had enough money, so we are going to go out and we are going to... Um, by a mirror. So when I ordered the right dimensions and, and the mirror came in, I'm not much for constructing things, but I could probably figure out how to hang up a mirror. So I was, you know, getting the mirror up over the sink and I was, and I, and I, and I looked at something that was, oh no, the mirror up against the side of the wall, it kind of, there's just, this was going on. And I thought to myself, they cut the mirror wrong. The mirror is like crooked and it's not going to fit. And so I, you know, got it down and I took my measuring tape and I like measured across to the angles. I said, I don't, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's cut wrong. So I put it back up there and sure there was this gap that kept getting bigger and bigger. And I did this like three or four times and then it dawned on me something. What was wrong, Jason? The wall wasn't plumb. The wall was crooked. Now that was a little harder thing to fix. Now I had stared at that wall for weeks and weeks and weeks with my little handheld mirror. I didn't know it was crooked. But when I put the straight line of that mirror up next to that wall, you know what became a glaring reality? Is the wall was crooked. You see, this is what the convicting presence and power of God does. He's called the Holy Spirit. He's not just called the Spirit. He's called the Holy Spirit. Do you realize that's an important adjective to describe the Spirit? He's not just the Spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. So what does the Spirit seek to do? To make us holy. To make us look and act and talk and think like Jesus. So sometimes as we are crying out for more of the Spirit, he says, just remember I am the Holy Spirit and understanding what I am here to do in your heart and in the life of your corporate family. I'm concerned about your holiness. See, that's what Amos is getting at here. He says there's coming a great day of harvest, but what's going to precede that is a plumb line that's going to bring holiness to the people of God. And then the harvest will come in, and we won't be able to contain it. Let's not get the cart before the horse. We must with sincerity ask the question for God to help us here. So what are we, what are we going to do? How do we process this? We're going to seek to land this plane. John chapter 6, verse number 28. Jesus had just fed the thousands. 
They're coming to him with some questions. And look at this question in John 6, 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Now stop right there. Don't read ahead. What must we do to be doing the works of God? How many of you ever asked yourself that question? And that's it, right? Lord, what do, you, what do you want me to do? Right? What do you want me to do? Lord, I, I remember it was about a year and a half ago I was asking God this very question on vacation. And he completely destroyed me because <laughs> he answered the question. Lord, what do you want me to do? Have you ever asked that question, God? What do you want me to do? Just tell me, I'll do it. Whatever it is, Lord, I'll do it. And then Jesus gives this response. Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the work of God that you believe in whom he sent. He said, your problem is not in your doing. The problem is in your faith. The work the work is faith. You see, they're asking a question about doing. Jesus said the problem is you're believing. Do you really believe what I'm saying? You see, faith in Jesus is the path to all victory. We must believe what he says. One of the conditions that was described in the last days in this church, they are ever hearing but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. We're ever hearing, ever processing, ever growing, but we're never coming to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, we are never believing that it's actually truth. It's just information. You see, faith converts information to truth. You can have a lot of information but have zero truth because you don't believe it. So faith converts all that you know into truth and he who knows the truth is what? Is free. Is free indeed, correct? So the issue for us, and it really all boils down to this, is our faith. Do we really believe what God says? 1 John 5 and 4, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory. Everybody say, this is the victory. <laughs> that has overcome the world, our faith. You see, victory is faith. What shall we do to do the works of God? Believe in the one God has sent. And if we have faith, who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So faith, so I believe, personally what I believe, we're looking for some like, you know, monumental answer to the problem of the church in our hour. You can go to conferences. You can read exhaustive encyclopedic indexes on addressing smart people with lots of PhDs that can come in and diagnose the problems with the American church. Can I tell you, I think Jesus just did. He said, your problem is you don't believe me. You have no faith. And having no faith means you have unbelief and unbelief will keep you out of the land of promise that I have for you. You see, the problem with the Israelites in the desert, it was not because of their disobedience, not because they're murmuring and they're complaining. It's because of unbelief kept them out of the promised land. Jesus says, do you really believe? Huh. 
said, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. And that's an okay prayer. You realize that, right? It was good enough for that daddy. It's good enough for me. Lord, I believe. Help me, Lord, with my unbelief. Because can I tell you, in this last hour, the tide is rising. Now, we have lived in a spiritual wasteland in this country for so long, we have confused our puddles with oceans. Some of us are a big shrimp in a little puddle. And we think we got it all figured out. The Baptists think they got it figured out. The Pentecostals, got they got it figured out. The Presbyterians, the Episcopals, the Catholics, they're big shrimp in little puddles. We got all, we got this whole ocean thing figured out and we're so disconnected. Puddle here, puddle there. We've all been to the beach at low tide, haven't we? It's pretty cool to take your kids, isn't it? All these little puddles all over the beach, you know, and you're walking around with your kids and kind of scoping it out. What's in that one? What's in that one? What's in that one? You may know what you want to find. A little fish, a little periwinkle thing, a little crab. They're all over the place. Everybody's in their puddle and all happy. The tide is rising. And I'm not sure if you've ever been to the beach at high tide when you were there at low tide but at high tide there aren't any more puddles there aren't any little shrimp swimming all by themselves the tide is rising and the puddles are getting swept up into the ocean of what God wants to do so I can tell you something if you're a shrimp and you're happy in your little puddle you're fixing to be overwhelmed with the cataclysmic tide of God's presence that's coming in this hour and this day Now, I don't know about you, but, you know, tides don't always rise that quickly when you're watching them. But when you go away a little while, it feels like it happened really fast. But when you're on the beach and you're digging there with your kids and you can see the tide rising, you know how you know? Because you see waves starting to get closer and closer to your little sandcastle. Come on, you know, you build your little sandcastle, got your little moat established, and you get far enough away so the, you know, tide's not going to demolish it. You got to time it just right. Now, here's the thing about it. When you're building your sandcastle, and the tide's coming in. If you time it just right, you know, you see the tide rising, you're not going to resist it. You're going to build a nice big moat around it. You're going to build, you're going to dig a, 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 a trench straight toward it. And what happens? The tide's going to come in, it's going to get in that little trench, and it's going to feed right in to what you're building. You see? Lord, you can, you can actually facilitate the rising tide in your environment before it sweeps you away. You getting it? You can actually like get ahead of it just a little bit if you're recognizing the signs of the times. You see, that's what God is doing in this hour amongst his people right now. For those that have eyes to see and ears to hear, God's saying you got an opportunity here in your present little puddle to experience a little bit about what I'm doing and getting ready to do. We're going to build a, we're building a, a trench. And God said, I'm going to give you a taste of what's coming. Because listen, just know you're just going to get a taste because what's coming is going to wreck everything that you built. It's going to wreck your denominations. It's going to wreck everything that you've done because the tide is rising. And I don't know about you, but I want to be that dad on the beach with my little kid, and I want to recognize the tide, and I want to build that trench because I want to be ahead of the curve and not behind the curve of what God is doing. <laughs> that's what God is doing here, guys. Do you realize that's what we're a part of?
That's why God would bring together a bunch of Baptists and a bunch of Pentecostal people and put them all in the same room and say, listen, don't you know what you're doing? You're building a trench into my heartbeat. And the tide is rising. We're going to catch it. We're going to move in it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that guy that gets just plummeted. I want to be ready to catch all that God, all that God is doing. I know this isn't easy. Of course it's not easy. Will we have faith or will we not? Will we trust in the leadership of Jesus as he leads the pastors and elders or will we not? The issue is not on music. The issue is not on logistics. The issue is on faith. Will we trust him or will we not? It's quite simple, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I say, Lord, I want to trust you. I perceive what you're doing. I can tell you in my life, I have never been more all in. Never been more all in to what God is doing. Never been more all in. I'm in. And I can tell you this, while my brothers and my sisters around the world are getting their heads chopped off, I will be darned if I'm going to permit a religious or a controlling spirit to dominate and anesthetize the church in this hour. My goodness, we can't and we won't. It's time to stand. Now, what's it going to look like? Everybody wants to, what's it going to be? What's it going to look like? <laughs> what does the beach look like when the tide comes in? You don't even see it anymore. <laughs> Arise and shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you like as the waters cover the sea. In other words, you lose all identity because it's swept away in the presence of what God is doing in this hour. What's it gonna look like? I don't know. Where are you gonna go? What's the manual? What's the book? Never done it before. Never did it before. Never been in the room with a bunch of Baptists before like this. I don't know. Uh-huh. Praise God. Listen, I am enjoying my little email signature at the bottom that says Dustin Pennington, lead pastor of Meadow Baptist Church. I'm just getting more mileage. Hallelujah. Go figure, God. Because what God wants, because in the end, we're getting ahead of God because we want to get rid of titles because titles are going to go away in that day, right? We want to get ahead of what he's doing. Let the worship guys come back up here lest I get excited. Hallelujah. Where are you going to go? What are you going to look at? What's the strategy? What's the plan? I don't know. Can I just encourage you what I'm doing? Go home and just kind of read the book of Acts. Just read the book of Acts. Start in chapter 1. Read to chapter 28. This isn't new. Jeff's been preaching this for years now. We want to be a New Testament church. A New Testament church. What does that mean? There's only one place to go. The book of Acts. And I can tell you, if you have a problem with anything in the book of Acts, you're probably going to have a problem. You're probably going to have a problem because the tide is rising. Things are going to get swept up in it. But be careful before you start criticizing what's in the book of Acts because we're all here because of what happened there. 
And this place will be full of people because of what happens here will be likened unto that. So check this out. Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 1. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Everybody say now. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. We don't know when this hymn was put together. When you go to your hymn book and you look this hymn up, it says author unknown. All they know is it was probably put together over many generations, many decades. But it came out to look like this. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back, no turning back. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. My cross I'll carry till I see Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. It became an anthem of declaration for the church of Jesus Christ. Throughout the ages, in insurmountable, implacable odds and enemies, they declared, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus. Paul, in this passage, he says, now, now is the day of salvation. Will you stand with me for a second? Now is the day of salvation. Sometimes we misquote that and we say today is the day of salvation. Oh, no, that's not what the Bible says. It says now is the day of salvation in this moment. And, you know, salvation for you and salvation for me is much more than just being saved from hell. It's not being just saved from something, it's being saved to something. And that from something continues. We are taught that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. I want to ask you something today. What do you need to be saved from this morning? What do you need Jesus to rescue you from right now? Now is the moment that he'll save you from fear. Now is the moment he'll save you from unbelief. Now is the moment he'll save you from addiction. Right now, right now, God says, in this moment that the precious blood of Jesus can touch you wherever you are. And I can tell you, in a moment sitting on a cruise ship in October of 2014, when I was asking God, Lord, what shall I do to do the works of God? Lord, I have served you faithfully my entire life, God. But yet I have never felt more empty and more bereft of, what, of my purpose. God, what is it? Lord, what do you want? I've given you only thing, all I know to give you from 12 years old, I have followed you and followed you and followed you. What do you want me to do, God? And I opened my Bible and it fell open to John chapter 6 and that verse I just read to you. What shall I do, Lord, to do the works of God? 
And Jesus said, believe in the one whom he sent. And you know what Jesus did in that moment in time? He took a scalpel and he pinpointed exactly my problem. You know what it was? Unbelief. Unbelief that you really don't believe. You really don't believe what I've told you is true. Oh, yeah, you're saved, but you really have never acted on what you know I've told you to do. You've never acted on it. You've let fear of man, you've let fear and people-pleasing and pacifying define your whole life, your whole service of me because you really haven't believed me. You heard a lot of truth, you knew a lot of information, but you never believed it and converted the truth where it would set you free. And you know what happened on that moment at 7 a.m. on the cruise ship with my cup of coffee? I said, Lord, I believe. Forgive me for my unbelief, Lord. Help me with my unbelief. I believe. And I can tell you, there was no bells, there was no whistles, there was no angelic chorus singing, hallelujah. But in faith, I said, Lord, I believe. And something in me changed. Something in me, God touched it. <laughs> and we're here today, right? God, God touched it and changed everything. Because I'm going to call you to do something that you would not do. That would be totally counterintuitive to everything you think. It's going to require faith to move in it. So close your eyes with me just for a second. My brothers and my sisters in this place, I know, I know it's been a struggle. I know we become so comfortable in our puddles because that's all we've ever known. That's all we've ever known. America, after, the, after World War II, the tide of God's presence began to recede. As we became caught up into the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth, and most of us have lived our entire lives in puddles on the on the beachhead of the kingdom of God. But can I tell you, God is not slow in keeping his promises as some account slowness. For it is not his will that any should perish, but all come to eternal life. But eventually his promises become reality. And the awakening of the activity of God on this planet is peaking around the world. It's peaking around the world. The gospel of Jesus is penetrating the four corners even as we speak. We're not even going after nations anymore. We're now going after little individual people groups throughout Africa. It's getting that close. And Jesus said the gospel of this kingdom will have been preached in the four corners of the earth. And mark that at that moment, the end shall come. Can I tell you, we're close. And God is saying to you, and he's saying to me, now is the day of salvation. Will you let me set you free this morning from unbelief? You know what? I'll be quite honest with you. I'm not even so much worried about your addictions. I'm not even so much worried about all this other stuff. Be honest. I'm more worried about unbelief than I am anything else. Because you get your faith centered on Jesus. Everything else will wash. How many of you would join me and say, Save me from my unbelief. Just get your, hand me up, get your hands up. If that's you, Lord, save me from my unbelief. Save me from my unbelief, Lord. Deliver me from the spirit of unbelief, Lord. 
I believe, God. I trust you. I want you, Lord. I want to dig my trench out to meet the rising tide, Lord. I want to anticipate your goodness in the land of the living, God. Give me eyes to see. Open up my eyes like you did Elisha's servant. God, open up our eyes today. God, that we can see the reality of your kingdom that's coming and is coming. And there's a cataclysmic reality, Lord, on the very near horizon when Jesus, the Son of God, will put his foot on the earth and there will be a worldwide earthquake that we have never known or ever seen. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign and we shall reign with him forever and ever and ever. But until that time, we're a vapor. And we want what little life we have left. And I won't care what you might think. We, it's just a moment to add the value and the significance of what we do for him. To not be susceptible to the God of this age. But to walk in victory through faith in Jesus Christ. Allowing him to save us right now from a spirit of unbelief that will atrophy us in this hour. Jesus. Jesus. Could you just begin worshiping him? It's in worship, in ascribing worth to Jesus, is when he will expose to you the worthless things of your life. And as we do that, I want you to pray as David taught us to pray and as he taught us to sing, to search us, O oh God. To search us, O oh God. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Lord, see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way huh, everlasting. <laughs>